get murdering. Blood on the tracks. The chilling whistle of the evening train echoed through the quiet woods of Northwood, New England. It was a cold October night in 1996 when the town of Northwood found itself embroiled in a mystery that would haunt its residents for years to come. A badly mutilated body had been discovered sprawled across the train tracks, torn to pieces as if a malevolent force had taken pleasure in its gruesome destruction. Detective Sarah Morgan, a seasoned investigator with a reputation for solving even the most perplexing cases, arrived at the scene. She parked her unmarked sedan next to the flashing police cruisers and made her way through the cluster of officers huddled around the grotesque remains. The moon cast an eerie pallor over the mutilated body, making the scene all the more macabre. Morning, Detective, Officer Rodriguez greeted her, his face pallid beneath the glow of his flashlight. Morning, Sarah replied, her voice betraying none of the unease she felt. What do we have here? Officer Rodriguez shook his head, unable to mask his discomfort. It's, it's gruesome, Detective. Never seen anything like it. Pieces of the body scattered everywhere. Sarah crouched down, carefully examining the torn and mangled flesh that lay strewn across the tracks. It was impossible to identify the victim in such a state. We need to find out who this poor soul is. And we need to find out who did this. As the investigation unfolded, the town of Northwood was gripped by fear and intrigue. Rumors spread like wildfire, and suspicion fell upon everyone, from the reclusive widow living on the outskirts of town to the jovial bartender at the local tavern. The list of suspects grew longer with each passing day. Sarah and her partner, Detective James Reynolds, began their inquiries by interviewing the train conductor, Edward Hargrove. He was a stout man in his fifties, with a gruff demeanor that seemed incongruent with his occupation. Tell us what you saw, Mr. Hargrove, Sarah requested. Hargrove scratched his head, his gaze distant. It was a regular run, nothing out of the ordinary. We were traveling through this stretch of woods when I heard a loud thud. I thought we hit a deer or something. Next thing I know, there's blood splattered across the windshield. I slammed on the brakes and called the authorities. James leaned in closer, his eyes probing. Did you see anyone on or near the tracks? Hargrove shook his head. No one, detective. It was pitch black out there. Sarah noted his response but couldn't help but wonder if Hargrove was concealing something. She decided to delve deeper into his background. As the investigation continued, Sarah and James encountered a myriad of characters, each with their own secrets and motives. There was Emily Carver, the owner of the local antique shop, whose obsession with historical weaponry raised eyebrows. Then there was Richard Wallace, a charismatic artist known for his provocative and disturbing paintings, which bore a striking resemblance to the crime scene. And, of course, there was the mysterious Dr. Victor Blackwell, the town's enigmatic coroner, whose calm demeanor masked a wealth of knowledge about human anatomy. The two detectives painstakingly pieced together the victim's identity. Dental records led them to a name, Robert Cunningham, a middle-aged man who had recently moved to Northwood from out of state. He had no known family in the area, and little was known about his past. The mystery deepened as Sarah and James delved into Robert's life, searching for connections that might lead to his killer. One evening, Sarah received an anonymous tip. The caller's voice trembled as they whispered, you're on the right track, detective, but you need to look closer to home. The line went dead before Sarah could ask for more information. The cryptic message sent shivers down her spine, and she shared it with James. They decided to focus their investigation on Northwood's residents, convinced that the killer lurked within their midst. 
As they delved deeper into the lives of Northwood's inhabitants, they uncovered a web of secrets and lies that seemed to connect everyone in some way. Emily Carver had a tumultuous affair with Robert Cunningham, and their relationship had ended in a bitter dispute over money. Richard Wallace, the artist, had depicted scenes eerily similar to the crime scene in his paintings, but he claimed they were purely coincidental. Dr. Victor Blackwell's extensive knowledge of human anatomy raised questions about his involvement in the gruesome dismemberment. The detectives faced a daunting task, piecing together a puzzle with no clear solution. Every lead seemed to yield more questions than answers. The town was enveloped in a suffocating atmosphere of suspicion and paranoia. As the investigation wore on, Sarah began to feel the weight of the case pressing upon her. She had a nagging sense that she was missing something, some crucial detail that would unravel the mystery. She decided to revisit the crime scene, hoping that a fresh perspective might yield new insights. Standing alone on the desolate train tracks, Sarah allowed her thoughts to drift. The wind rustled the leaves in the trees, creating an eerie symphony of whispers. Suddenly, a flash of movement caught her eye. She turned, her heart pounding, and saw a figure disappearing into the woods. Without hesitation, she pursued the fleeting shadow. The pursuit was frantic, branches snapping beneath her feet as she closed in on her quarry. She cornered the figure against a large oak tree, her flashlight revealing the face of Emily Carver. Emily, Sarah panted, her gun drawn, what are you doing here? Emily's eyes were wide with fear, her breath coming in ragged gasps. I saw someone, she stammered. Someone lurking near the tracks. I thought it might be the killer. Sarah's heart raced as she considered Emily's words. Was it possible that the killer had returned to the scene of the crime? She radioed for backup and instructed Emily to stay put. Within minutes, the woods were swarming with police officers. They combed the area meticulously but found no sign of the mysterious figure Emily had seen. It was as if the person had vanished into thin air. Back at the police station, Sarah and James questioned Emily further. She was adamant that she had seen someone, a dark figure lurking near the crime scene, but she couldn't provide a clear description. As the days turned into weeks, the investigation seemed to stall. The town's residents grew weary of the constant scrutiny, and tensions escalated. Sarah couldn't shake the feeling that she was missing a crucial piece of the puzzle, something that would lead her to the elusive killer. Then, a breakthrough came in the form of a piece of evidence that had been overlooked, a scrap of paper found in Robert Cunningham's pocket. It contained a cryptic message, meet me at midnight by the river, where the secrets flow. Sarah and James immediately headed to the riverbank, guided by the mysterious message. As they arrived at the designated spot, they saw a shadowy figure standing at the water's edge. The moonlight revealed the face of Dr. Victor Blackwell. Dr. Blackwell, Sarah said, her voice steady, what are you doing here? Blackwell turned to face them, his expression inscrutable. I received the same message you did, detectives. I thought it might lead to some answers. Sarah and James questioned Blackwell, and he revealed a startling piece of information. He had been conducting a private autopsy on Robert Cunningham's remains and had discovered a small, concealed compartment within the victim's body. Inside, he found a tiny vial containing a mysterious substance. Blackwell believed that this substance might hold the key to unraveling the mystery. The vial was sent to the lab for analysis, and the results were shocking. It contained a rare and highly potent poison known as Death's Whisper. This revelation opened up a new avenue of investigation. Sarah and James realized that Robert Cunningham had not only been brutally murdered but had also been poisoned before his death. 
The discovery of the poison led the detectives to re-examine the suspects. Emily Carver's connection to Robert Cunningham took on a new significance, as did Richard Wallace's disturbing artwork, which seemed to depict the effects of the deadly poison. Dr. Victor Blackwell's knowledge of poisons raised further suspicions. The town of Northwood held its breath as Sarah and James delved deeper into the tangled web of secrets and deceit. Each suspect's story unraveled under scrutiny, and alibis began to crumble. Yet, despite the mounting evidence, the detectives were no closer to identifying the killer. As winter settled in and the town was blanketed in snow, the investigation reached a critical juncture. Sarah received an anonymous tip that led her to a hidden cabin in the woods. Inside, she found a makeshift laboratory filled with vials of poisons, chemicals, and a journal filled with cryptic notes. The journal belonged to none other than Richard Wallace, the artist. The evidence against Richard was damning. His journal contained detailed descriptions of the poison, as well as sketches that eerily resembled the crime scene. Sarah and James arrested him, convinced they had finally captured the killer. But as they interrogated Richard, he vehemently denied any involvement in the murder. He claimed that he had been researching poisons for his art, seeking inspiration from the macabre to create his disturbing paintings. He insisted that he had nothing to do with Robert Cunningham's death. Sarah couldn't ignore the doubts that gnawed at her. She knew that the true killer was still at large, lurking in the shadows, manipulating the investigation. But who could it be? The investigation had taken a toll on the town of Northwood, tearing at the fabric of its close-knit community. Suspicion and fear had become pervasive, and trust was in short supply. Sarah and James continued their relentless pursuit of the elusive killer, determined to unravel the mystery and bring justice to the victim's family. As the months passed, they uncovered a series of shocking revelations. Emily Carver had a hidden past, including a troubled history with the law. Dr. Victor Blackwell's connection to a powerful pharmaceutical company raised questions about his motives. And Richard Wallace's unsettling fascination with death and his obsession with Robert Cunningham's murder seemed increasingly suspicious. The detectives faced a daunting task, piecing together a puzzle with no clear solution. Every lead they followed seemed to lead to a dead end, and every suspect had an alibi or a plausible explanation for their actions. Then, one fateful night, as Sarah and James were reviewing the evidence in their dimly lit office, a message arrived. It was a letter, handwritten and sent through the mail. The envelope bore no return address. Sarah opened the letter cautiously, her heart pounding in anticipation. Inside, she found a single sentence written in elegant script, the answer lies in the shadows of the past. The cryptic message sent a chill down her spine. It was as if the sender knew more than they should, as if they held the key to unraveling the mystery. Sarah and James delved into the pasts of the suspects once more, searching for any hidden connections or long-buried secrets. They re-examined every piece of evidence, every interview, and every lead, determined to uncover the truth. The winter snows began to melt, and spring arrived in Northwood, bringing with it a renewed sense of hope. The town, weary from the weight of the mystery, yearned for closure. Sarah and James were determined to provide it. As they sifted through the past, they made a startling discovery. Robert Cunningham had a history of financial disputes and had been involved in a lawsuit years before his move to Northwood. The lawsuit had been settled out of court, and the details had been sealed. But one name stood out among the documents, James Reynolds, Sarah's own partner. Sarah couldn't believe what she was seeing. She confronted James, demanding an explanation. He admitted to his past involvement in the lawsuit but claimed it was a mere coincidence. The revelation threw the investigation into chaos. 
Sarah struggled to reconcile her trust in her partner with the mounting evidence against him. Could James be the killer, driven by a hidden vendetta against Robert Cunningham? As tensions within the police department reached a breaking point, Sarah faced a difficult decision. She couldn't ignore the evidence, but she couldn't condemn her partner without definitive proof. She requested a leave of absence from the case, determined to find the answer she sought on her own. Sarah delved deeper into the tangled web of secrets, determined to uncover the truth. She revisited the crime scene, retraced the steps of the investigation, and revisited the suspects. With each revelation, the lines between guilt and innocence blurred. Then, one night, as she was reviewing the case files in her dimly lit apartment, she received a phone call. The voice on the other end was distorted, unrecognizable. Detective Morgan, the voice hissed, you're close to the truth, but you're missing a crucial detail. Look at the evidence again, and you'll see the real killer hiding in plain sight. The anonymous caller hung up before Sarah could respond, leaving her with a sense of dread and determination. She knew she had to re-examine the evidence with fresh eyes, to see what she had missed. As she combed through the case files once more, a pattern began to emerge. She realized that every suspect had an alibi for the night of the murder except for one, Edward Hargrove, the train conductor. Sarah revisited Hargrove's statement from the night of the discovery. He had claimed that he hadn't seen anyone on or near the tracks, but his testimony had been brief and lacked detail. She decided to interview him again, this time with a more focused and probing approach. Hargrove's demeanor had changed since their first meeting. He appeared nervous and evasive as Sarah questioned him about the events of that fateful night. She pressed him for more information, and as the minutes passed, his alibi began to unravel. He finally admitted that he had been drinking at a nearby bar on the night of the murder and had fallen asleep in the conductor's cabin. He claimed that he had no knowledge of the crime until he heard the loud thud and saw the blood on the windshield. Sarah couldn't ignore the significance of Hargrove's confession. He had been the only person with the opportunity to commit the murder, and his initial alibi had been a lie. But as she prepared to arrest Hargrove, a nagging doubt crept into her mind. Could it really be this straightforward? Had the true killer been hiding in plain sight all along? The investigation had taken so many twists and turns, and the web of deceit had grown so tangled that Sarah couldn't be sure of anything anymore. She needed more evidence, more proof. As she continued to dig deeper, Sarah uncovered a shocking revelation, a connection between Hargrove and Robert Cunningham that dated back to their childhoods. They had grown up in the same small town, and their families had a long-standing feud that had never been resolved. The pieces of the puzzle were finally falling into place. Sarah realized that the motive for the murder lay in the past, a festering grudge that had endured for decades. Hargrove had carried the weight of that grudge with him, hidden beneath a veneer of normalcy. Sarah confronted Hargrove with her findings, and he broke down, confessing to the murder of Robert Cunningham. He admitted that he had killed him in a fit of rage, driven by the long-standing feud between their families. As she watched Hargrove being led away, Sarah couldn't help but wonder if the real killer was still out there, waiting for the right moment to strike again. The town of Northwood had found closure, but for Sarah, the case of the mutilated body on the train tracks would forever remain a haunting mystery, one that would continue to haunt her dreams. Months turned into years, and Sarah couldn't let go of the unsolved case. She kept the evidence close, revisiting it in her spare time, hoping to uncover the missing piece that would unmask the true killer. Then, one day, as she was going through the old case files one more time, a revelation struck her like a lightning bolt. She saw a connection, a subtle thread that had eluded her before. It was a detail so innocuous that it had been overlooked by everyone, including herself. 
Sarah gathered the remaining members of the investigation team and presented her findings. The room was filled with a tense anticipation as she explained her theory, connecting the dots that had long eluded them. The truth, when it finally emerged, was more shocking than anyone could have imagined. The pieces of the puzzle fell into place, and the killer was. Alright everybody, so welcome to uh, this review of Blood on the Tracks. This one, I will say it was significantly better than the last episode. But Definitely a lot of twists and turns, but we're still seeing a repeat of Sarah and Emily and shadows and the town. The town is so upset. They are always upset They're for some They're so reason. fucking upset. I, I think, I will say... I don't think we've ever had conversations before in the no, story. No, there was and never any dialogue between the customers, so that no. was really interesting to see. Interesting, and but it sounded, I mean, all right, it's characters. a monotone voice. It sounds terrible, let's face it. But at the same time, it's interesting to hear at least some thoughts. But it was only like five seconds of dialogue in, in between some pieces, in between lots of webs and lies and <laughs> deceit. And, Days turn into months. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like there was like way too many twists and turns. It was really hard to follow this one. Yeah. Um, in comparison to, to the other two. I mean, I think the first one was good. Second one was, I mean, we know it was bad, but at least we could follow the story. <laughs> My favorite part, I think, is when they're like, so not only was he poisoned, but he was brutally murdered. I know. It's like he, and he was died. Poisoned. He died twice. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, um, I don't know. They threw. I like, would okay. love it if it was actually two people. Like somebody tried to poison him. Well, at the same time, somebody else was trying to kill him with the train or whatever. I definitely. I want to talk about the ending in a second, but like the beginning throws you off too because they're talking about. It's gonna be an Emily, right? I, well, they're talking about well, what's his face. There's an Emily um, in it. That's her. her Robert thing. had an affair with Emily, and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, and Emily had a troubled past, and. They, re they reference past like 500 times in the story <laughs> and I'm like okay well clearly there's something about the past and like there's anonymous notes and calls and saying I don't know. look, See, look you, further you're thinking about it as if someone intelligent wrote this <laughs> I mean this thing's smarter than me but mm, there were some yeah. shadowy figures yeah I feel like it's so stupidly easy but at the same time, we're never going to get it. Like, I, I don't... Because they, they threw in, like, okay, so the the main guy, who was it? The Hargrove, the, the train conductor. They basically said that... Yeah, he, I don't think he, he did it. I to, think he was just drinking on the job and was covering up the fact that he well, was just Well, his alibi really fell apart, and then there was, like, Right, but I think his things. alibi fell apart because he was just an alcoholic who, like, didn't want to get caught. But why would you say that you job? committed a murder, then? He said he, com he confessed to murdering Robert. Well, my long answer to that is that psychologically people crack under pressure. And you can get them to admit to anything, even if they haven't done it. I mean, that's true. What I was that's confused not, with... That's not that intelligent here, but that is a fact. I was very confused about the very beginning, and maybe I just wasn't paying attention in the first five seconds, but like, who the, who the fuck got murdered? Was it Robert that got murdered on the train tracks, or was it an unidentified body on the I train tracks? I think it's Robert okay. got murdered, and then... No, there's a couple <laughs> of different did I miss R that? names. Oh, oh, yeah. So I think Richard did it. Either that or the doctor. I'm between Richard and the doctor. I mean, at first we were like, it's fucking Emily, right? Like, right, because well, the first, it has to the be. first two I episodes were Emily. I can't go against my own yeah. decision making, which is if there's an Emily in a story, she fucking did it. Yeah, two episodes <sighs> in, it was Emily both times. I'm going to say it's the doctor. Dr. Blackwell? 
Yeah, because they're like, he's obsessed with like killing people and death and he has a, a sneaky knowledge of bodies. And but why would he tell them that he found a vial in Robert that would lead them to basically... Because maybe he was pissed off that they were like so far away from, you know, psycho killers like to like kiss kiss it. Well, Richard Wallace came up a lot. He had the... I, that's what I said. It was between Richard yeah. and the doctor for me. An interest in poisons, etc. He had his own, like, cabin or whatever I don't really have was. a reason why I think it's Richard. Is Richard the painter? Yes. He was an artist. He was researching, for some fucking reason, researching artist. poisons and shit in the middle of the woods. I, like, I don't... In his cabin or whatever. Yeah, I think it's the doctor. Yeah, because they pulled him in and he was like, I swear to God, it's just for my research. I didn't do it, I swear. Yeah, I just think it's the... Because the, no one pulled in the doctor. Yeah. I, uh, I want to win. But what about her partner? What about Sarah's partner, James? No, because that would be a good story, and that's not what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was so certain. As soon as I heard that detail about the lawsuit and the disputes, I was like, fuck, it's the partner. It's, it's the partner. He's in the he position did. to cover it up. He um, is. I would love if it was two, honestly, two killers. Like, the conductor, like, poisoned him, and then somebody else pushed him on the track. And which one killed him? One person gets charged with attempted murder, and one person gets charged with murder. See, the problem with this story is it was like, I thought I knew who did it, and then it (laughs) didn't. (laughs) And there was another twist, and then another twist, and then another twist, and another twist. And I was just like, holy shit, like, how many fucking twists can you have in a story? A lot. And and webs. How many webs can you have in stories and secrets? Um, and Char- lies. Charlotte's webs. You can have as many Charlotte's as you want. Charlotte's web, yes. So you think it's the train? No, you don't think it's See, the train. See, here's a fun fact. People think the pig's name's Charlotte. It's not. The spider's Charlotte. It's, it's Charlotte's her. web. It's her web. Yeah. Just like Reese's Pieces. Yeah. People think it's Reese's Pieces, but it's not. Reese it's owns his, it's his pieces. the pieces. It's his small little pieces. His tiny little baby pieces. Yes. His salty... Sweet baby. Okay, baby. Jesus Christ. Um, who do you think did it? You think it's either Richard or. Those are my two. It's either Richard or the doctor. Doctor's final answer. Although I am putting a little Emily? side bit that I should. I'm, it's going to be Emily. I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> it's going to be fucking Emily. It's going to be Emily. I feel like Detective James, the partner. I feel Detective like. Detective James. I forget. There was a full name in there, but they mentioned it in like five seconds. Too many names. Yeah. So as I'm going through this, I'm writing this crap down, and my God is going so fast um, that I'm getting maybe about 60, 70% of it. That's pretty good for him. That's that's pretty decent for me, yeah. I don't remember (laughs) shit. Um, At first, I thought it was Emily again, just with the affair and everything and the troubled past. No, Emily's just a whore. I'm actually convinced this is the same Emily from all stories. Yeah. She just got around. Actually, no. Emily did actually kill everyone all the time. So. Yeah, exactly. She's a black widow. There was well, then there was the the doctor, which was like big pharma. There was uh, the lawsuits and disputes and debt and whatever the fuck that Robert was was into. Mm-hmm. And then there was Richard with the poisons. So, Hear me out. So what if Emily's a praying mantis? She just eats people. She just sexes eats. them up and then eats them. <laughs> actually, I don't think they do any eating. They just chop their heads off. They just eat their heads. They're like the Amazonians of the insect world. I guess. Yeah. Who's your Who's your actual number the one doctor, choice? The doctor. The, you, okay, you're saying like it's the doctor. Seven times. Well, you've said two. You said doctor no, or you I said just want to say. I just want to let the audience know that I was torn, and if it's the other person... You were rip-torn. There is a piece of me that is right. 
I mean, I, I can respect that. Thank you. Let's see. I'm trying to think here. So, Richard. Say your name, buddy. Poisons, Emily. Uh, pick a name. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with the detective. Just detective because, James. Just because. James uh, Baxter. His name just came up, and it was sort of like a out of nowhere. It's too good of a story. Thing. It is too good of a story yeah. to be, you know, that person close to you. But they said, look closer. It's more like local or whatever the fuck. So. What if it's Sarah then? Sarah? What if it, she's the one that committed all the murders? <laughs> Look closer, you're actually a schizophrenic and you're committing these crimes. Look in the mirror, bitch. Wouldn't that be such a good story? That'd be like some identity fucking John Cusack fucking early yeah. fucking 2000s. If you haven't seen shit. Identity as a movie, see it. It's good. Uh, actually, I saw just a man who wasn't oh, there. Uh, we don't want to ruin it. You've just ruined it. Oh, shit. All right. I'm sorry. But watch it anyway. It's a good movie. It's so good. Amanda Pete, you're not gonna see it coming. No. Alright, let me let me take a take a look and see who did it. Alright everybody. So the actual killer in this story ended up being you, you were correct. Oh. It's the uh, it's the doctor, Doctor Blackwell. Yes, I knew it. Uh the His town's extensive corner. Extensive knowledge of poisons yeah. has indicated. So let's uh let's go for the reasonings behind it. So it says, Dr. Blackwell had extensive knowledge of poisons indicated by his discovery of the death's whisper poison in the victim's body. Although, I don't know why the fuck you would actually call that out to a detective if you were the actual murderer. Um, it's kind of weird. No, because... Trying to, trying to throw mouse, people babe, off. Um, he also had access to the victim's remains during the autopsy, which could have provided an opportunity to tamper with evidence, mm. hide incriminating information. Dr. Blackwell received an anonymous message that led him to the hidden cabin with uh, the makeshift laboratory. This suggests that he may have been manipulating the investigation, leading the detectives away from himself. The cryptic message sent to Detective Morgan mentioned looking for the killer in the shadows of the past, which could imply the connection to Dr. Blackwell's profession as a coroner dealing with the deceased for their past. I feel like that's a stretch, that's but that's what it is. Yeah. Um, Dr. Blackwell's <laughs> calm demeanor and knowledge of human anatomy might have allowed him to commit the murder and cover his tracks effectively. Right, well, that one makes sense. So, yeah, that that's it. So it was, it was a doctor all along, and uh, point one for Colleen in Thank this round. Thank you. Yes, and, I am uh, the first person yeah. to collect a point. You know what? At least it wasn't fucking Emily, right? Like, that's, oh, fucking Emily, man. We, we finally we got our, we got our real story. Although, she got off the D. We'll see what we can come up with to make this stuff more interesting. But um, we're guessing along with you, and we're just as clueless, honestly. Uh, no, as you not are. me. Not you. Yeah, you. I mean, you're, you're one for three. I'm. You know what? Don't bring up the other one. I'm only That's three. so rude. Yeah. <laughs> a win is a win. What did you pick? Did you guys pick the right one? Did you not pick the right one? Did you pick your friends? Did you pick your friends? Did you pick your nose? Yeah. You pick can't your pick ass? your friends' did you nose. Pick your ass, maybe. No, that's not a. No? Oh. I mean, some. I mean, well. It's fall. Either way, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Pick your friend's ass. And uh, we look forward to catching you guys on the next episode. Thanks a lot. Happy, happy murdering. Happy murdering. Go kill some people. Yeah. No, don't do that. Oh. Do not do that. Sorry. Nope. I was right. She was right. Murder by algorithm.